The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I'm going to do something a little tricky today in that uh, I'm going to preach a message that was part two of a two-part series. You are not going to get the benefit of part one. So as I go in some rolling fashion, I'm going to try to weave in parts so that you kind of follow where we're going. Um, you can flash up the slide, the next one there. I want to read the text for you. and it's, The title is simply called Returning to God. It's a uh, passage in the book of James that occurs right after a passage on what James calls spiritual adultery, okay? And uh, it's a very rough subject. It's one that may have touched some of our own lives in the context of family, and it's not an easy subject to deal with. And so um, part one was talking all about what constitutes spiritual adultery. Part two is about when things are getting patched back up. When, after realizing what we've done, we want to return to our lover, what does it look like when you come back to something like that as the violator? So it's not an easy subject to talk about, but it's not the kind of thing that's rare in the Christian experience. And I'll explain why it's going to be relevant to every last one of us over the course of our life following Jesus. James 4, 4 through 6, reads like this. Uh, am I getting single? There we go. So, I'm sorry, not 4 through 6, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail, Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So in the passage just prior to this one, James deals with the subject of spiritual adultery. And if we were to spell out what that means, I think adultery, whether in relationships with people or in our relationship with God, can simply be defined this way. Adultery is giving ourselves away to someone else when we already legitimately belong to someone. That's at the heart of all adultery. Uh, Because really, if you don't belong to someone, you're free to give your heart to whoever you want, right? I mean, that's what's so fun about being young, (laughs) being unattached, is who should I decide to love? And there's like potentially 7 billion people. (laughs) But once you belong to someone... Your heart is no longer just yours to give away. It legitimately belongs to someone in the same way that theirs belongs to you. And it's interesting that when he talks about unfaithfulness or lapses in our spiritual life, the word James uses is one that is so provocative, so piercing. He uses the word adultery, which no human being, especially any human being in a relationship, could ever hear with a neutral heart, a neutral ear, can they? Adultery is a word that carries, by its very nature, a deep and powerful sting. 
But it's not the kind of word that describes those people, somebody who would be capable of doing something like that. The truth is every last one of us in marriage as well as in spiritual life commit adultery all the time. There isn't a married person who is not an adulterer because Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said adultery is not just being with someone physically, it's desiring, lusting after, giving your heart away to something else. And what adultery teaches us is not so much about the failings of the human heart, but what adultery teaches us is that the human heart is made so irreversibly wired to love that if we're not finding love in the place we're supposed to find it, the heart won't just sit still and go, oh well, I guess I'm just going to consign myself to a loveless life. The human heart can't do it. It has to find love somewhere. And that's what adultery teaches us about ourselves is that we are irrepressibly designed to love and when we're not finding it, we will go out and get it. That doesn't make it right, but it explains something about the way God created us. And what's so interesting is when he uses the word adultery to describe spiritual unfaithfulness, what he's saying is we over-privatize our spiritual lives, don't we? We always make spiritual life and sin something like, oh, I failed. I let myself down. I, I'm not as good as I should be at this stage. We privatize it to where we turn sin into something about me, a character flaw. But what James says is sin is never just a private failing. It is the violation of a relationship. It will always be that. You know, in the same way that if I were to commit adultery against my wife, my greatest grief would not be, oh man, I should have been a better husband. I'm not a great husband. I'm never going to win the husband pageant this year because I failed as a... I'm not going to be thinking that at all. The greatest violation isn't against myself and my potential. It is against the woman I was called to love. That's why James uses the word adultery to remind us every time we wander spiritually, it's not because we failed at being a Christian. It's that we lost sight of the relationship we're in, bound to legitimately, and we have wandered from someone. We haven't just wandered to some place. We have wandered away from someone. Now, do you see that that's not going to be a rare experience for those who follow Jesus? That probably every one of us who calls ourselves Christians in this room has already found ourselves in that place at some point. Maybe you came to church this morning full-blown in a fit of spiritual adultery where you really are finding it hard to stay put with the God you belong to. Could it be that that's how you came to church this morning? If you're, and you don't have to sh shake visibly. We don't, we don't need to know that about you because... We can't handle that kind of information as your fellow human beings. But God needs to know, and you need to acknowledge that if you came in this morning. The one caught in adultery has a couple options. And you will eventually get caught because sooner or later you can't love, fake half-love two people. Eventually you're going to go, forget this one, I'm going to take that one. Eventually it will always come out. You cannot hide adultery forever. And when we're caught in it spiritually or in marriage, the person caught has two options, don't they? They could take the road of pride and start blame shifting. Well, if I had a better this or a better that, then I, would, I wouldn't act the way I did. If you had given me, and they can cast blame to everyone else and say, it's all the world's fault. Who wouldn't do what I did under the circumstances? And that pride, that path of pride cuts off any room for reconciliation. 
it makes it impossible to restore the relationship because even though you're caught, you cannot humble yourself. And then there's a second path available, which is the path of humility. And that says, you know what? I own what I did. There were reasons. It didn't come out of nowhere. But I know what I did, and I own that. And when you take the path of humility, suddenly the road back into the relationship is wide open. The gates are flung open. Because the person you've grieved still loves you and truly longs for your return. They are wounded. They are humiliated. But they long for your return. And when you humble yourself, that return is made possible. So the the passage just before this, it ends with James quoting Proverbs 3.34. And here's what it says. Boom. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And all he's saying is, this is God's invitation. All you who have strayed away from me, take the path of humility. Don't take the path of pride. Don't stick your nose in the air and be angry at the world over what you did. Own it. Be humble. Because if you do that, he will restore the relationship. That's God's way of inviting us back. Really what he's talking about is what? The word repentance, right? Repentance. The heat in here is making me feel like I'm in the mission field preaching, so we might just go like Africa time and I'll go for about an hour if that's all right with you. Man, it's hot in here. So, (laughs) Repentance is one of those words that we think we understand but probably don't understand as well as we should or as well as we think. And that's why when we go through cycles of repentance, the effects are not what we think are described in the Bible. So we go through what we think is repentance, and yet the net effect of that repentance is rarely what the Bible describes as restoration of the relationship. So I think James, what he does in these verses that we just read this morning, gives us a roadmap to repentance. He shows us what real repentance looks like when you know clearly you're the one who did wrong and you're returning to the one to whom you belong. And the first thing he says is submit to God. Submit to God. That's a weird place to start, I thought. You know, if if I were smarter than James, I would have started somewhere else. But, you know, but God is much smarter than me. This is where he begins. And really that word submit in the Greek is a strongly military term. It's, It's like this. It's like a strong warrior. And if you've ever seen a soldier and a general... A hundred times out of a hundred, the soldier can kill the general with his bare hands, okay? Generals are old men with lots of experience. They can't fight to save their lives. So the soldier who can do, he's lethal, stands before a general, and just like in Game of Thrones or something, you know, it's, the picture is of a powerful warrior bowing under the authority of another and saying, you know, my sword is yours, my liege, something like that. This is nerdy as I'm going to get today. But it's something like that, right? Where you're saying, I'm placing myself under your authority. Meaning, when we stand next to each other, there is no confusion in my mind who we are relative to one another. I'm restoring the right relational posture with you that every time we walk in a room, I will be under you and you will be over me. All really James is saying is, The beginning of repentance is to recognize that God is who he is. Because if you actually see God, what other options exist besides being under God? 
If you can be next to God or over God, he's really a pretty crappy God, isn't he? If I can actually be God's equal or even command God to do my will, he's not really God. He's not much of anything. When I finally recognize who God is, the only available position relative to him is for me to place myself under his authority. And here's why that's an important starting point in repentance. Because at the heart of all adultery or unfaithfulness is forgetfulness. Let me say that one more time. At the heart of all unfaithfulness is forgetfulness. It's not that you are seduced by someone else so much as you forgot at some point who the person you belong to is to you. Maybe because you seized on all your dissatisfactions. Maybe because you're working out your own issues. But for some reason, the person who legitimately has your heart, you forget that. And you begin to wander as though that's no longer true. And that's why the first step towards restoring the relationship is to restore the right positional posture between the two of you. Who are you to me? I need to remember that and reestablish that before I do anything further. And that's important because I think that step gets skipped a lot of the time in Christian life. We feel really bad about what we did. We're like, I can't believe I'm capable of doing things like this. I'm an awful person. And we make it all about ourselves. And we just move on. We say, I want to wash my hands and just get right with my life again. And all the while, we don't restore the right relational posture with God. And so the first step is, God, I think I forgot who you are to me. And that's why I went chasing after something else. And then James says this, which I thought is so pathetic, really. Okay? Not, not that James said it, but that he needed to say it. He's writing to Christians, remember. And his next point of advice is, please resist the devil. I mean, does it, are you guys awake? You, you, you're with me, right? Does it not strike you as a little sad that you have to remind Christians to resist the devil? But that's because we get it so backwards so much of the time. We spend so much time resisting God and submitting to the devil. So the devil has such an easy time with us. He's like, oh, this is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I just spent four days uh, in New York City with my daughter and my wife and her, her cousin and one of her friends celebrating her sweet 16. And I've always been a little bit freaked out by the New York subway system. When I'm there, I'm always with friends. And so I'm just going wherever they I just walk on, get on. And suddenly, I have to be the guide. And um, I thought it was going to be super difficult, so I'm planning all this stuff. Within the first two hours, I got it down. It was very easy to figure out. And it was like that. Like, I'm expecting resistance, and I find, oh, it's actually super easy. I don't know what I was stressed out about. I think that's how the devil feels messing around with us. Oh, I'm going up against God's people. Holy cow, it's a lot easier than I thought it was. They're not even putting up a fight. And yet, what do we do with God? God, if you really want me to do all this, you better show me something. You better earn my love, my respect, my loyalty. And we take the person who already we belong to, and we make them jump through all the hoops. Everybody else is just like, whatever. We get it backwards. Can you imagine if I had to say to my wife every time we went out, now, honey, you're a beautiful woman. There are a lot of men. If you go to New York City, it's like, the movies. I mean, they're just, every guy you walk past, hey, baby, I'd like to take you home. Are you married? Come on, these are my daughters. My, my, it's so disgusting over there. Ugh, gross. Okay, that's just New York. And 
Imagine if I had to say to my wife, every time we went out, there's a lot of guys out there who are going to ogle you and try to make plays on you. Please resist them, okay? Please just resist them. If I had to say that every time we went out, what would that say about our relationship? Thank God I don't have to do it, but the truth is that's really our hearts with God. And it's not just a few of us, it's all of us. James has to remind us to resist the devil. Now, having said that, that's the first, first thing I want to say is, let's not get it backwards. Let's resist the devil and submit to God, not the other way around. God's not the one who has to jump through all these hoops and satisfy our demands before we give him our hearts. It's totally the other way around. Let's make the devil's job harder. But then let me explore with you, what does it mean to resist the devil? Are you going to get a cross and some holy water and be like, ah, I resist you. That stuff doesn't work. Do you think the devil's afraid of some water? To resist the devil, I think, means this. The truth is we're led astray by desires that are very deep inside of us. Nobody can make us like these things. We just like them. You know, when I see a Tesla Model S on the road, it's not like the devil's going, I want you to find that car attractive. I just look at it and go, dang. There's one more thing I'm never going to have. <laughs> right? That's just the heart we have, right? Nobody makes me like it. I just like it. It's a hook in my heart that nobody else external suddenly flips a switch. It's always been there. So I don't think the way the devil primarily works is by dangling beautiful things in front of us. Even if the devil didn't exist, those beautiful things fill the earth we live in. It's not like the devil makes cars hot. He doesn't make jeans tight. He doesn't create the internet. Does he? That stuff is everywhere. Here's where the devil works. He takes the beautiful things that our hearts desire, that the world is full of, and he lies to us about what those things will do for us. The devil's primary tactic is not to, to expose us to beautiful, attractive things, but to lie to us about those things we see. In fact, Jesus, when he preached about the devil, his enemy, said that in John 8, 44, when the devil lies, he speaks his native language. That means in order to say anything true, the devil has to do some translation work. He's got to, all right, I'm going to try to tell something true. But when he lies, it's just like he's, blah, 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 blah. It just comes right out. It's like he's speaking his native language when he lies. So here's, here's another way I'm going to say it. When you're sinning, the emphasis is not on what beautiful thing has gripped your heart, but what lie have you believed about that thing? What lie have you believed? For example, I've talked to single guys who are hopelessly addicted to pornography and masturbation. They can't stop. I say, okay, well, if you show that image to a hundred straight men, a hundred straight men will have a reaction if they're under 99 years old. Some even pass that, right? It's not like that's the problem. It's that in the midst of it, they're believing a lie about that. And here's a lie they're often believing. This is the best I got. Nobody likes me. I'm never going to get married. No girl has ever given me the time of day. And so I feel sorry for myself. I have no other choice. Am I supposed to be asexual, celibate for the rest of my life? I have nothing. I'm never going to have anything. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't know I'm lonely. So what do you want me to do? 
This is my only outlet, my only choice. Even married men who are hopeless, you did say, well, if you were married to my cold fish of a wife, look, this is all I got. She's never, and you know what? These are the lies we're believing is this is our life sentence. This is the only hope God is ever going to give us. And so we must make our own way. We have believed lies. That's how he works. And when we believe those lies, the devil has a way of killing our hope and resigning us to something. What lies are you believing? That's why when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, remember this, Matthew 4? How did Jesus combat the devil? Because here's what the devil did. When he came against Jesus in the wilderness, he appealed to his pride. He flat out distorted what the Bible said. He made promises he couldn't keep. Those are three of the devil's favorite tactics. You know what? You deserve better than this. You're the man. What are you doing in this nowhere life, in this nowhere? Go out and get you yours, man. That's, that's the appeal to pride was the first below. The second one was, you know, the Bible doesn't really say that. Let me tell you what it really says. And the third one was, if you do this, I will give you everything you desire. I promise. And in all three cases, how did Jesus fight the lies of the enemy? With scripture. The only real protection we have is to combat the lies we're tempted to believe with the restating of the truth. That's all we have. Do you really think you can resist the devil by going, bring it on, show me everything you've got, I don't care. You can't resist sin by pretending like you don't like that stuff. I've tried it for years and years. I'm pretty good at lying, even to myself, but I couldn't hold out for very long. And that's the way I was taught to grow spiritually when I was younger. Hey, you know, um, you're a Christian. That stuff is disgusting. You don't like naked pictures and fancy cars and lots of money. That stuff has no appeal to you anymore, does it? And I would be like, that's right, Pastor. Yeah, that stuff sucks. I don't like it. I could say it for like an hour, but what a lie that is. Because as soon as I'm out of church, I'm like, dang, man, I like that stuff. I like it so much. I cannot fight sin by pretending I don't like what I like. You will never go toe-to-toe against the devil and win on your own. You can't. That's why he says resist the devil in the pattern of Jesus and he will actually flee from you. But if you don't resist in God's power, remember when when some of um, the early Christians were trying to cast out demons and the demon goes, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but... Well, you guys. And he beat the crap out of them. Remember that? The devil just beat the crap out of these guys because they tried to do something that looked like ministry, but they didn't do it in God's power. They got jacked up. That will happen to you and me every time. You cannot fight the devil by being all macho and go, let's go. He will destroy you. He won't flee from you. But he will flee the truth of God's word because he knows that's the only thing that neutralizes his effectiveness is the, the truth cuts the legs off his lies. That's all I do in counseling. Someone goes, I'm never going to get married. I'm like, okay, let's just extend that out. So your picture of God, the Heavenly Father, is he knows you want to love someone, and he'll never let you have it because he hates your guts. That's your picture of God. Well, when you see it like that, well, that's the truth, okay? Your stupid lie is creating a very, very bleak picture. The truth is your Heavenly Father is nothing like you're making him out to be. And they go, oh, 
I feel very encouraged. Much better. Thank you. And I see the devil flee because he cannot stand up to the truth. He just can't. I'm going to be here all day if we don't move on. So let's move on, all right? Then he says, come near to God. Now, I preached this sermon like 12 years ago at my church. And when I preached it, I preached it wrong. Okay? I'm going to admit it. Here's what I said when he came to this point. I said, you know, guys, when you're far from God, you got to draw back near to him. you got to do the religious activities you did at first. you got to read the Bible. you got to pray. you got to go on personal retreats. you got to listen to sermon tape after sermon tape. And I even said stuff like this. You have to take all your secular music and throw it in the garbage and replace it with Maranatha music. <sighs> Man, I really regret that sermon. I'm not saying those things aren't important. Okay? But that's not why James says, come near to God. He's not saying that when you've wandered from the faith, it's all up to you to come crawling back. Do you know how soul-killing that is? When you know you've done wrong, and then they place all their burden right back on you, and say, now you grovel your way back into my good graces. You just crawl, you do penance, you apologize until you're sick of apologizing, and then apologize some more. If God did that to us, we'd give up. He's not saying come near to God like you do all the work. But look at what he says. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. The reason James says come near to him is not to, not to encourage us to engage in lots of religious activity to get back in, good, in, in, in the good graces of God. He's saying this. If you were unfaithful to someone you loved... Do you know how long a path it is to rebuild that relationship? Because every other day it's like, whatever, like you're so faithful, get out of here. And you, they make you live in the doghouse for like 10 years because that's the human heart. We don't trust very easily. We don't heal very quickly. And so when someone violates our trust, it takes a very long time to get back in our good graces. Because we're not as grace-filled as God is. Husband who doesn't even commit adultery just forgets to buy flowers for the anniversary. Let him try to come home and put his arms around his wife. She'd be like, eh, it's not going to be that easy, all right? Don't just try to bring home flowers the day after and think you're going to get away with it. And you, you've had that feeling if you're in a relationship, right, where you try to put your hand on their, their shoulder or their leg, and they're like, eh, kid, you know. And they, re they reject that overture, that attempt to reconnect. And we think that's how God's going to be. Oh, man, I really stepped in the doo-doo this time. God, I, my bad. There's nothing anyone else did. I messed up. I strayed. And you're assuming it's going to take like six years of serving in the children's ministry, 18 mission trips, maybe about 20% offering for a few years, and maybe God will let you back in. You're thinking, I'm going to have to do it. And that's why I'm always suspicious at my church when somebody who's way out in the margins suddenly starts volunteering for everything. I actually do this. I pull them aside and go, what did you do? Come, seriously, tell me, what you do bad? Because you are really trying to scrub off that stain hard, man. I, you were dead to this church, and suddenly you were like volunteer number one. What's going on with you? Now, sometimes I got to eat humble pie, and they're like, nothing. I'm just going through revival. I'm like, high five, right? That's great news. But nine times out of ten, they're like, oh, here's what happened. 
Like, there's the truth right there. You are trying so hard to be religious because you feel bad about what you did. You think come near to me means get real active in the church. If the parable of the, the prodigal son teaches anything, it teaches us that when we return from straying against God, we never return to him as soldiers who deserted or as slaves who ran away. We always return to him as his sons and daughters. And he will never bar the gates against our approach. No matter how far you've strayed from God, how unfaithful you have been, what you will find in God is the father who waits on the walls and runs out to meet you before you even get home. Do you remember the prodigal son parable where the whole way home with his little knapsack, he's, he's planning how he's going to grovel to his father. So here's what I'll say. Uh, duh, I know I can't come in the house as your son. I already blew that. But do you think I could just work for you as a hired employee? And he's got this whole presentation, maybe even with some PowerPoint slides. He's trying to show how, uh, here's path to sonship. I cut that off. Uh, I like to be not path, alternate path to employee status. And the whole time he's working out the plan because even then he doesn't understand the heart of his father. Even as he comes groveling back home with his tail tucked between his legs, he still doesn't get what his father is like. So he's making an entire plan up based on a misunderstanding of the heart of his father. And then the father comes running out of the house. He's, at first, he's like, does he have a stick in his hand? Should I run? You know, <laughs> that's what I'd be thinking, like he's coming out to beat me up. And instead, his dad's running with open arms, and he doesn't know what to do. He's shocked at how warmly he's received back. And all he did was start walking back towards home. That's all he did. The father rushes towards him. When we're told anywhere in the scriptures to come near to God, it's because he's saying, every time you do, I will rush near to you. The most common mistake we will ever make about God is to underestimate His mercy. We will think He's more like us. Healing slowly, forgiving slowly. That is not it at all. This son was amazed to discover that his father immediately restored his sonship and threw a party for his dead son who is now alive. That is the heart of our father. That's the only reason we come back after we've strayed. As Paul reminds us in his letter to the Romans, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I hope that's a lesson for us because over the course of our lives, many people will betray us and will be unfaithful to us. And I've just seen this story play out way too much in the church that the minute someone does to us what we do to God every day, we get on our high horse and we look down our nose and say, maybe in a year or two, I will find it in my heart to forgive you. One strike, you're out, buddy. And it shows how the people who are beneficiaries of God's grace don't always share the heart that God has for us. We are forgiven quickly. We must also be those who forgive quickly. Amen? Let me give you another quick thing here. James then says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. 
Okay, wash your hands and purify your hearts. Now, that's a tricky thing because we can't cleanse ourselves. Is that right? I'm at a Christian church, right? ICC, you, you guys believe that gospel? Like only the blood of Christ washes us clean. So it's a weird command to give someone. Wash your hands, purify your hearts. I can't. <laughs> what does that mean? So we've got to unpack this a little bit. When James says this, he's not saying we can do for ourselves what only Christ can do for us. That ultimate cleansing comes only from God. But here's what I believe he's saying. You can't come back into your relationship carrying the souvenirs of your unfaithfulness. What I call at our church souvenirs of sin. Hey, souvenirs of sin. That hidden folder that's password protected on your computer with your favorite images which you're saving for a rainy day, for the day that you and your spouse get into a big fight. That little stash of money no one knows about, your get-out-of-town money, in case you get sick of everybody and you just want to take off. You know what I'm talking about? Do you come back from adultery saying, Honey, I messed up. Um, I just had this suitcase full of gifts that they gave me and our old love letters. I hope you don't mind. I just want to make some room for them. You can't bring that stuff in here. Leave that stuff outside. Because your heart is such that if you leave that stuff lying around, you're going to love it again very soon. One thing we learn over the course of Christian life is it's very hard to control the heart. It's much easier to control the other things. And so what he's saying is when you come to repentance, you wash your hands at the sink of repentance, meaning you release those things which cling to you from your unfaithfulness. You can't try to carry those things back into the reconciled relationship with God. We learn about that in Acts chapter 19 when a bunch of people come to Christ in Ephesus and a lot of them used to practice magic arts. They would buy these very expensive books full of magic spells and apparently black magic was alive and well in those days. So after they came to Christ, they realized these precious items which we once valued as our most highly prized treasures no longer have a place in the new life we have with Jesus. And so as a symbol, they created a big bonfire and they found all these, these scrolls and they threw them in. And Luke, so interesting, I don't know why he does this, but he, he says, and the value, the estimated value of all those scrolls was about 50,000 drachmas. When I extrapolate to today's money, that's about a $10 million bonfire. So it wasn't like they're throwing away a few things, like here's my paperback of Harry Potter that I bought at the airport. This is like the stuff that's most dear to you. And here's what I want to tell you about washing your hands at the sink of repentance. What washes down the drain is going to be very, very, very expensive. And just like sometimes when you get grease on your fingers and it doesn't come off that easy, you've got to scrub at it with orange goop, lava. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't come off that easy. You think you're going to be able to just let go of that stuff. Oh, sick porn. i got to get rid of this. And you're going to have that delete. You're going to have to delete that or get rid of your computer. And it's going to be hard for you because even though you know it's destroying you, it's so hard to do that last little act of cutting the tie. If you're honest about it, even when you're at that place of repentance and you have to let go of it, it's not that easy to do. Jesus gives a very extreme teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. He goes, look, if you've got something that's causing you to sin, the only remedy 
is drastic action to cut it out of your life. Because you can't really control your heart. You know, in criminal investigation, they say there are three elements to a crime. What are they? Means, opportunity, and what? Don't you all watch any television? You guys just read the Bible all day at ICC? So if you watch a little TV, what you'll learn is there are three elements to a crime. Means, opportunity, and motive. I could kill you right now, but why would I want to? So there's no motive, or I have the motive, but I'm too weak to kill you. So it's this idea, there's three legs to that stool, and you've got to get all three together, then you'll figure out what the crime is. Here's the thing. It's very hard to control motive. I will like what I like in every circumstance. So what I found is the only way I can really get rid of some of this stuff in my life is to cut off means and opportunity. Means and opportunity. Let me give you an illustration just from two days ago. I was in Times Square with my daughter in New York City. And I don't know if you know this in Times Square. They got this thing now where, you know, they got all these cartoon character guys, Batman superheroes. And you, they're like, hey, let's take a picture. Five bucks, please. Well, now they got these girls in carnival, you know, you know the Brazilian carnival outfits. It's a bit of a stretch to call it an outfit. They have paint covering their boobs and then a G-string. And they're walking around in broad daylight. <laughs> and I'm like, Really? This little kid's just ogling them and just, it's so gross. But it's not so gross that I'm like bulletproof to it. So I see these ladies up there and I realize if I walk past them, on the one hand, I'm going to be like, oh, that's so unfortunate. They should get these people off the street. On the other side, I know in my heart, I'm like, dang. And because I know this about myself as a human being, I can't pretend my motive is going to be entirely 100%. Pastor Dave, right down the middle. Sometimes it's just that, that disgusting dude, Dave Lee, come raging out and punch Pastor Dave in the face. So I got to be honest. So what did I do? Let's cross to the other side. Over the traffic and the construction to the other side of 7th, there's only SpongeBob and Mario over there. The naked chicks are on the east side of Times Square. So that's what you do. You cut off means and opportunity, and what happens after a while is the heart changes little by little. You get that? When you carry the souvenirs of your unfaithfulness in, you will fall in love with those things again. Now, before we actually start thinking, we're in Africa <laughs> for four-hour service. Let me bring this for landing, and I'll say one word about this last piece. He ends with these weird words, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Some of us had fathers who took this very literally at all times. You know, no laughing. There's no joy in the Christian life. To be a Christian is to be serious all the time. Oh, dear, 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 dear. What a world, what a world. I've met Christians like that. There's no joy, no levity in them at all. And it sucks to be around people like that. It just like vampire, drains all the life out of your soul being around people like that. If you think there's something godly about being gloomy, please, cut it out. You're killing everybody, okay? It doesn't mean that there's no place for laughter or joy in Christianity. But here's what it means. Too often we do something wrong, we stray from God, and we're so mechanical in the way we come back. All right, let's go through the motions. Let's, let's just get on with our lives here. And we're trying so hard to get rid of the bad feeling and the stain of guilt. We're trying so hard to just move on. 
we don't pause enough to think about what we've actually done to someone who loves us. You know, so many men, the way that they make up from a fight is not to actually restore the relationship, but to stop her from being mad at me anymore. Guys, look at me. Am I not telling the truth? When you're... First of all, most men don't even know they're in a fight unless the woman gets mad. Right? So I say, hey, how's your relationship going? The woman's like, well, I'm monitoring all the dials. Let me tell you what's going on in the intimacy end. And so women are always assessing what's going on. With the I ask the man, how's it going? He goes, well, let me see. Is she mad at me? No. Things are great. Things are just great. She's not mad at me. And then when she is mad at you, the only goal we have is how do I get her to stop being mad at me? It's not how do I fix what's wrong in the relationship? How do I think about what I've done to her heart? It's how do I get her to stop scowling? Maybe flowers, maybe chocolates. We try all the magic tricks because that's what a man does. We're so lazy and stupid. And so what James is saying is before you just move on and fix it, think about what you did to somebody who loves you with their whole heart. Because if there isn't that point at which you reflect on the relational and emotional cost of adultery, you'll do it again. You'll do it again and again and again and again. And I don't know that you can do this grieving and mourning and wailing unless you sit still long enough to really think about what you've done. To get quiet and still and reflective. Is there space in your life to do that? Are there stretches of time where there's nothing scheduled, where you can really just think about where you are with God? Or do you fill every spare second with a television show? In order to really move on, you've got to know what you did. You've got to feel it deep down. Do you get that? And I hope that's a part of repentance we will never shortcut, never route around. It, it needs to occur to us that we've damaged a relationship that has been filled with mercy and love towards us. So I want to close now just by inviting us to pray. I know I've gone way past my time, but nobody ever complains that the Lord of the Rings movies were too long, so there you are. I don't feel that bad, okay? You may not be in spiritual adultery this minute, but I promise you at some point it will be an issue in your life because the heart is made to wander. It's made to worship in love, and sometimes God seems very far away and invisible. When you stray, I believe that the Holy Spirit of God will relentlessly pursue you and show you how far you've gone. When you come home to him, come home the path of humility. Get things right with God. Think about what you've done to this relationship. And know this above everything else I've said, that when you decide to come home, come near to God, Every single time, he will run near to you. There's no doghouse in God's house. There's no sleeping on the couch. 
And if you've drifted from him and you want to come home right now, you don't have to wait till next year to get back in. This very hour, he will greet you back as his son and daughter. And all will be made new. All will be set right. So I'm going to invite you now in your own voice, in your own way, just to sit before God and respond to what you've heard. And then the praise team will lead us in some songs and we'll close, okay? Know this. Every time we sin, it is never just a personal failing. It is always a betrayal of the one we love. That's the way your heavenly Father will always experience your wandering and mine. The good news is the door back home is always open to his sons and daughters. And if you will come near to God, he will rush near to you. So follower of Christ, if you've wandered far from the one you love, come home and know that this very hour you can be inside your father's house restored fully. This is the good news of the gospel. May it strengthen you and hold you close to him for the rest of your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.